0: Section 11 of Tatisbulba and Other Tales by Nikai Alexievich Gorgov, translated by John Cord. This LibriVox recording. is in the public domain. Tatisbulba, Chapter 11. At the time when these things took place, there were as yet on the frontiers neither custom-house officials nor guards, those bugbears of enterprising people, so that anyone could bring across anything he fancied. If anyone made a search or inspection, he did it chiefly for his own pleasure, especially if there happened to be, in the wagon, objects attractive to his eye, and if his own hand possessed a certain weight and power. But the bricks found no admirers, and they entered the principal gate unmolested. Bulba, in his narrow cage, could only hear the noise, the shouts of the driver, and nothing more. Yankel, bouncing up and down on his dust-covered nag, turned after making several detours into a dark, narrow street bearing the names of the Muddy and also of the Jew's Street, because Jews from nearly every part of Warsaw were to be found here. This street greatly resembled a backyard turned wrong side out. The sun never seemed to shine into it. The black wooden houses with numerous poles projecting from the windows still further increased the darkness. Rarely did a brick wall gleam red among them these, too, in many places, had turned quite black. Here and there, high up, a bit of stuccoed wall illumined by the sun glistened with intolerable whiteness. Pipes, rags, shells, broken and discarded tubs. Everyone flung whatever was useless to him into the street, thus affording the passer-by an opportunity of exercising all his five senses with the rubbish. A man on horseback could almost touch, with his hand, the poles thrown across the street from one house to another, upon which hung Jewish stockings, short trousers, and smoked geese. Sometimes a pretty little Hebrew face, adorned with discoloured pearls, peeped out of an old window. A group of little Jews, with torn and dirty garments and curly hair, screamed and rolled about in the dirt. A red-haired Jew, with freckles all over his face, which made him look like a sparrow's egg. Gazed from a window, he addressed Yankel at once in his gibberish, and Yankel at once drove into a courtyard. Another Jew came along, halted, and entered into conversation. When Boba finally emerged from beneath the bricks, he beheld three Jews talking with great warmth. Yankel turned to him and said that everything possible would be done, that his Ostap was in the city jail, and that although it would be difficult to persuade the jailer, yet he hoped to arrange a meeting. Bulba entered the room with the three Jews. The Jews again began to talk among themselves in their incomprehensible tongue. Taras looked hard at each of them. Something seemed to have moved him deeply. Over his rough and stolid countenance a flame of hope spread. Of hope such as sometimes visits a man in the last depths of his despair, his aged heart began to beat violently as though he had been a youth listen jews said he and there was a triumphant ring in his words you can do anything in the world even extract things from the bottom of the sea and it has long been a proverb that a jew will steal from himself if he takes a fancy to steal set my Oster at liberty give him a chance to escape from their diabolical hands i promised this man five thousand ducats will add another five thousand all that i have rich cups, buried gold, houses, all, even to my last garment, I will part with, and I will enter into a contract with you for my whole life, to give you half of all the booty I may gain in war. Oh, impossible, dear lord, it is impossible, said Yankel with a sigh. Impossible, said another Jew. All three Jews looked at each other. We might try, said the third, glancing timidly at the other two god may favour us all three jews discussed the matter in german bulba in spite of his straining ears could make nothing of it he only caught the word mardukai often repeated listen my lord said Yankel, we must consult with a man such as there never was before in the world as wise as solomon and if he will do nothing then no one in the world can sit here this is the key Admit no one. The Jews went out into the street. Taras locked the door and looked out from the little window upon the dirty Jewish street. The three Jews halted in the middle of the street and began to talk with a good deal of warmth. A fourth soon joined them, and finally a fifth. Again he heard repeated, Mardukai. Mardukai. The Jews glanced incessantly towards one side of the street. At length from a dirty house near the end of it emerged a foot, in a jewish shoe and the skirts of a kaftan ah mardukai mardukai shouted the jews in one voice a thin jew somewhat shorter than yankel but even more wrinkled and with a huge upper lip approached the impatient group and all the jews made haste to talk to him interrupting each other during the recital mardukai glanced several times towards the little window and taras divined that the conversation concerned him mardukai waved his hands listened, interrupted, spat frequently to one side, and pulling up the skirts of his caftan, thrust his hands into his pocket, and drew out some jingling thing, showing very dirty trousers in the operation. Finally all the Jews set up such a shouting that the Jew who was standing guard was forced to make a signal for silence, and Taras began to fear for his safety. But when he remembered that Jews can only consult in the street, and that the demon himself cannot understand their language, he regained his composure. Two minutes later, the Jews all entered the room together. Mardukai approached Taras, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, When we set to work, it will be all right. Taras looked at this Solomon whom the world had never known, and conceived some hope. Indeed, his face might well inspire confidence. His upper lip was simply an object of horror, its thickness being doubtless increased by adventitious circumstances. This Solomon's beard consisted only of about fifteen hairs, and they were on the left side. Solomon's face bore so many scars of battle, received for his daring, that he had doubtless lost count of them long before, and had grown accustomed to consider them as birthmarks. Mardukai departed, accompanied by his comrades, who were filled with admiration at his wisdom. Balba remained alone. He was in a strange, unaccustomed situation for the first time in his life. He felt uneasy. His mind was in a state of fever. He was no longer unbending, immovable, strong as an oak, as he had formerly been, but felt timid and weak. He trembled at every sound, at every fresh Jewish face which showed itself at the end of the street. In this condition he passed the whole day. He neither ate nor drank, and his eye never for a moment left the small window looking on the street. Finally, late at night, Mardukai and Yankel made their appearance. Taras's heart died within him. What news? Have you been successful? he asked, with the impatience of a wild horse. But before the Jews had recovered breath to answer, Taras perceived that Mardukai no longer had the locks, which had formerly fallen in greasy curls from under his felt cap. It was evident that he wished to say something, but he uttered only nonsense, which Taras could make nothing of. Yankel himself put his hand very often to his mouth, as though suffering from a cold. Oh, dearest lord, said Yankel, it is quite impossible now, by heaven, impossible, such vile people that they deserve to be spit upon. Mardecai here says the same. Mardakai has done what no man in the world ever did, but god did not will that it should be so three thousand soldiers are in garrison here and to-morrow the prisoners are all to be executed Tellus looked the jew straight in the face but no longer with impatience or anger but if my lord wishes to see his son then it must be early to-morrow morning before the sun has risen the sentinels have consented and one gala has promised but may he have no happiness in the world where is me what greedy people there are none such among us i gave fifty ducats to each sentinel and to the gala good take me to him exclaimed taras with decision and with all his firmness of mind restored he agreed to yankel's proposition that he should disguise himself as a foreign count just arrived from germany for which purpose the prudent jew had already provided a costume it was already night the master of the house, the red haired Jew with freckles, pulled out a mattress covered with some kind of rug and spread it on a bench for Bulba. Yankel lay upon the floor on a similar mattress. The red haired Jew drank a small cup of brandy, took off his caftan, and betook himself, looking in his shoes and stockings very like a lean chicken, with his wife to something resembling a cupboard. Two little Jews lay down on the floor beside the cupboard, like a couple of dogs but taras did not sleep he sat motionless drumming on the table with his fingers he kept his pipe in his mouth and puffed out smoke which made the jew sneeze in his sleep and pull his coverlet over his nose scarcely was the sky touched with the first faint gleams of dawn than he pushed yankel with his foot saying rise jew and give me your count's dress in a moment he was dressed he blackened his moustache and eyebrows Put on his head a small dark cap, even a Cossacks who knew him best would not have recognized him. Apparently, he was not more than thirty-five. A healthy color glowed on his cheeks, and his scars lent an air of command. The gold-embroidered dress became him extremely well. The streets were still empty. Not a single one of the market folk as yet showed himself in the city with his basket on his arm. Yankel and Bulba made their way to a building which presented the appearance of a crouching stork. It was large, low, wide, and black, and on one side a long slender tower like a stork's neck projected above the roof. This building served for a variety of purposes. It was a barrack, a jail, and the criminal court. The visitors entered the gate and found themselves in a vast room, or covered courtyard. About a thousand men were sleeping here. Straight before them was a small door in front of which sat two sentries, playing at some game which consisted in one striking the palm of the other's hand with two fingers. They paid little heed to the new arrivals, and only turned their heads when Yankel said, It is we, sirs, do you hear? It is we. Go in, said one of them, opening the door with one hand, and holding out the other to his comrade to receive his blows. They entered a low and dark corridor which led them to a similar room with small windows overhead who goes there shouted several voices and taas beheld a number of warriors in full armour we have been ordered to admit no one it is we cried yankel we by heavens noble sirs but no one would listen to him fortunately at that moment a fat man came up who appeared to be a commanding officer he swore louder than all the others my lord it is we you know us and the lord count will thank you Admit them a hundred fiends and a mother of fiends admit no one else and no one is to draw his sword nor quarrel conclusion of this order the visitors did not hear it is we it is i it is your friends yankle said to every one they met well can it be managed now he inquired of one of the guards when they at length reached the end of the corridor it is possible but i don't know whether you will be able to gain admission to the prison itself yana is not here now Another man is keeping watch in his place, replied the guard. Ay aye, cried the Jew softly. This is bad, my dear lord. Go on, said Taras firmly, and the Jew obeyed. At the arched entrance of the vault stood a Heduk with a moustache trimmed in three layers. The upper layer was trained backwards, the second straight forward, and the third downwards, which made him greatly resemble a cat. The Jew shrank into nothing, and approached him almost sideways. raised "'Oh, High Excellency! High and illustrious Lord!' "'Are you speaking to me, Jew?' "'To you, my illustrious Lord!' Hm. but I am merely a hay-duke,' said the merry-eyed man, with a triple-tiered moustache. "'And I thought it was the Vivoda himself, by heavens! Ay, ay, ay!' thereupon the jew twisted his head about and spread out his fingers ay what a fine figure another finger's breadth and he would be a colonel the lord no doubt rides a horse as fleet as the wind and commands the troops the heyduke twirled the lower tear of his moustache and his eyes beamed what a warlike people continued the jew ah oh, is me what a fine race golden cords and trappings that shine like the sun and the maidens wherever they see warriors aye aye again again the jew wagged his head the heyduke twirled his upper moustache and uttered a sound somewhat resembling the neighing of a horse Nay, pray my lord to do us a service exclaimed the jew this prince has come hither from a foreign land and wants to get a look at the cossacks he never in all his life has seen what sort of people the cossacks are the advent of foreign counts and barons was common enough in poland they were often drawn thither by curiosity to view this half asiatic corner of europe they regarded moscow and the ukraine as situated in asia so the heyduke bowed low and thought fit to add a few words of his own i do not know your excellency said he why you should desire to see them? They are dogs, not men, and their faith is such as no one respects. You lie, you son of Satan! Exclaimed Bulba. You are a dog yourself. How dare you say that our faith is not respected? It is your heretical faith which is not respected. Oh," no, said the hey Duke, "I can guess who you are, my friend. You are one of the breed of those under my charge." So just wait while I summon our men. Taras realized his indiscretion, but vexation and obstinacy hindered him from devising a means of remedying it. Fortunately, Yankel managed to interpose at this moment. Most noble lord, how is it possible that the count can be a Cossack? If he were a Cossack, where could he have obtained such a dress and such a count-like mien? Explain that yourself, and the hey-duke opened his wide mouth to shout. Your Royal Highness, silence, silence for heaven's sake, cried Yankel. Silence, we will pay you for it in a way you never dreamed of. We will give you two golden ducats. Oh, two ducats. can't do anything with two ducats. I'll give my barber two ducats for only shaving the half of my beard. Give me a hundred ducats, Jew. Here the hey-duke twirls up a moustache. If you don't. I will shout at once. Why so much? said the Jew sadly, turning pale and undoing his leather purse. But it was lucky that he had no more in it, and that the heyduke could not count over a hundred. My lord, my lord, let us depart quickly. Look at the evil-minded fellow, said Yankel to Taras, perceiving that the heyduke was turning the money over in his hand as though regretting that he had not demanded more. What do you mean, you devil of a heyduke? said Bulb. What do you mean by taking our money and not letting us see the Cossacks? No, you must let us see them. Since you have taken the money, you have no right to refuse. Go, go to the devil. If you won't, I'll give the alarm this moment. Take yourselves off quickly, I say. My lord, my lord, let us go in God's name. Let us go. Curse him. May he dream such things that he will have to spit, cried poor Yankel. Bulba turned slowly with drooping head and retraced his steps, followed by the complaints of Yankel, who was sorrowing at the thought of the wasted ducats. "'Why be angry?' let the dog curse that race cannot help cursing oh woe is me what luck god sends to some people a hundred ducats merely for driving us off and our brother they have torn off his earlocks and they made wounds on his face that you cannot bear to look at and yet no one will give him a hundred gold pieces oh heavens merciful god but this failure made a much deeper impression on bulba expressed by a devouring flame in his eyes let us go he said suddenly as if arousing himself let us go to the square i want to see how they will torture him oh my lord why go that will do us no good now let us go said bulba obstinately and the jew followed him sighing like a nurse the square on which the execution was to take place was not hard to find for the people were thronging thither from all quarters in that savage age such a thing constituted one of the most noteworthy spectacles not only for the common people but among the higher classes a number of the most pious old men a throng of young girls and the most cowardly women who dreamed the whole night afterwards of their bloody corpses and shrieked as loudly in their sleep as a drunken hussar missed nevertheless no opportunity of gratifying their curiosity ah what tortures many of them would cry hysterically covering their eyes and turning away, but they stood their ground for a good while all the same. Many a one with gaping mouth and outstretched hands would have liked to jump upon other folks' heads to get a better view. Above the crowd towered a bulky butcher, admiring the whole process with the air of a connoisseur, and exchanging brief remarks with a gunsmith, whom he addressed as gossip, because he got drunk in the same alehouse with him on holidays. Some entered into warm discussions, others even laid wages. But the majority were of the species who, all the world over, look on at the world and at everything that goes on in it, and merely scratch their noses. In the front ranks, close to the bearded civic guards, stood a young noble in warlike array, who had certainly put his whole wardrobe on his back, leaving only his torn shirt and old shoes at his quarters. Two chains, one above the other, hung around his neck. He stood beside his mistress, Luciusia and glanced about incessantly to see that no one soiled her silk gown he explained everything to her so perfectly that no one could have added a word all these people whom you see my dear osesia he said have come to see the criminals executed and that man my love yonder holding the axe and other instruments in his hands is the executioner who will dispatch them when he begins to break them on the wheel and torture them in other ways the criminals will still be alive but when he cuts off their heads then my love they will die at once before that they will cry and move but as soon as their heads are cut off it will be impossible for them to cry or to eat or drink because my dear they will no longer have any head Cecilia listened to all this with terror and curiosity the upper stories of the houses were filled with people from the windows in the roof peered strange faces with beards and something resembling caps upon the balconies beneath shady awnings sat the aristocracy the hands of smiling young ladies brilliant as white sugar rested on the railings Portly nobles looked on with dignity servants in rich garb with flowing sleeves handed round various refreshments sometimes a black-eyed young rogue would take her care or fruit, and fling it among the crowd with her own noble little hand. The crowd of hungry gentles held up their caps to receive it, and some tall noble, whose head rose amid the throng, with his faded red jacket and discoloured gold braid, and who was the first to catch it with the aid of his long arms, would kiss his booty, press it to his heart, and finally put it in his mouth. The hawk, suspended beneath the balcony in a golden cage, was also a spectator, with beak inclined to one side and with one foot raised. He too watched the people attentively. But suddenly a murmur ran through the crowd, and a rumour spread. They're coming! They're coming! The Cossacks! They were bareheaded, with their long locks floating in the air. Their beards had grown, and their once handsome garments were worn out and hung about them in tatters. They walked neither timidly nor surlily but with a certain pride, neither looking at nor bowing to the people. At the head of all came Ostap. What were old Taras's feelings when thus he beheld his Ostap? What filled his heart then? He gazed at him from amid the crowd and lost not a single movement of his. They reached the place of execution. Ostap stopped. He was to be the first to drink the bitter cup glanced at his comrades, raised his hand, and said in a loud voice, God grant that none of the heretics who stand here may hear the unclean dogs, how Christians suffer. that none of us utter a single word. After this, he ascended the scaffold. Well done, sir, well done, said Bulba, softly, and bent his grey head. The executioner tore off his old rags. They fastened his hands and feet in stocks, prepared expressly, and, we will not pain the reader with a picture of the hellish tortures which would make his hair rise upright on his head. So they were the outcome of that coarse, wild age, when men still led a life of warfare, which hardened their souls until no sense of humanity was left in them. In vain did some, not many, in that age make a stand against such terrible measures. In vain did the king and many nobles, enlightened in mind and spirit, demonstrate that such severity of punishment could but fan the flame of vengeance in the Cossack nation. But the power of the king, and the opinion of the wise, was as nothing before the savage will of the magnates of the kingdom, who, by their thoughtlessness and unconquerable lack of all far-sighted policy, their childish self-love miserable pride, converted the diet into the mockery of a government. Ostap endured the torture like a giant. Not a cry, not a groan was heard. Even when they began to break the bones in his hands and feet, when amid the deathlike stillness of the crowd the horrible cracking was audible to the most distant spectators, when even his tormentors turned aside their eyes, nothing like a groan escaped his lips, nor did his face quiver. Taras stood in the crowd, bowed head and raising his eyes proudly at that moment, he said approvingly, Well done, boy! Well done! But when they took him to the last deadly tortures, it seemed as though his strength were failing. He cast his eyes around. Oh God! All strangers, all unknown faces! If only some of his relatives had been present at his death! Who would not have cared to hear the sobs and anguish of his poor weak mother, nor the unreasoning cries of a wife tearing her hair and beating her white breast, but he would have liked to see a strong man who might refresh him with a word of wisdom and cheer his end. And his strength failed him, and he cried in the weakness of his soul, Father, where are you? Do you hear? I hear, rang through the universal silence, and those thousands of people shuddered in concert detachment of cavalry hastened to search through the throng of people yankel turned pale as death and when the horseman had got within a short distance of him turned round in terror to look for Taras, but Taras was no longer beside him every trace of him was lost End of section 11.